Set aside your fantasy and sci-fi doorstoppers. Sometimes big ideas come in small packages. This is Word Less. Hi, Mark. Hey, Allison. How'd your week go? Oh, I had a pretty good week, you know. Uh, go Albiceleste. I know you really avidly follow sports, so let me tell mm. you in detail about Argentina's <laughs> no, great no, victory. That's really, no, that's really okay. You don't have to tell me. That's fine. Thank Anyways, you. Anyways, Argentina, gotta... I've been watching the World Cup, so how about okay. you? Okay, sounds fun. Uh, well, I got an early Christmas present. I What's got that? a leaf blower, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure that number one son got for himself but that's okay it's fine <laughs> mark we have a special guest again aren't you excited i love guests who did you bring today <laughs> i brought mike from you're gonna have to say it because i always screw it up mike the cosmere deep dive podcast correct so he suggested this book to us before we get started do we want a synopsis and just say it's all spoilers is that how we're gonna do it Yes. Okay, perfect. It's Hawk and Fisher. How can you spoil this? <laughs> okay, go ahead, Mike. <laughs> um, all right. So first off, before we get into the synopsis, this is a murder mystery short story set in a fantasy universe, which is just just a fun little combo. Uh, I recognize that Simon R. Green is a terrible author who writes terrible books. And I love him and I love them. So just just a, that we've laid that groundwork. This is our second Simon R. Green book, by the way. Yeah, you guys covered the first Nightside book. Yes. Yes, we did. It was a book that was written but, and published and probably earned the but, author some money. <laughs> this is from his OG series. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is actually one of like the first things he ever got published. Uh, oh, it's very clearly. Yeah, I don't know whether it's his actual first thing published. Um, I, I should have researched that, but you can tell from the way it's written that this was definitely something earlier in his career. Oh yeah, he he had not learned quite as many bad habits yet. He also <laughs> hadn't learned quite as many good habits yet. So, Correct. I'm gonna say one of the things that really bothered me about this story, and I didn't enjoy it as much as something from the night side, is the dialogue. Because it was kind of like this weird, uh, trying to sound archaic, but then it would just go into like a whole bunch of modern slang. And I have never read the word bathroom so many times in such a short space of time. <laughs> I was like, just stop saying bathroom. Stop it. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> All right. So time for the synopsis proper. Uh, so this book is Hawk and Fisher by Simon R. Green. Uh, we begin on a Batman cold open on Hawk and Fisher, who are captains of the guard in the city of Haven. Uh, they're complaining about being kicked off their last case due to corruption and tasked with taking down a vampire. So they go to a house where a vampire is supposed to be. And they do, they start searching and surprise, they find a corpse. And then double surprise, they find a corpse. But this one's angry. This is a vampire. So they fight <laughs> it. And then triple surprise, uh, there's a guy who hops in to help the vampire and it's gonna be a corpse and then he's a corpse and they kill everybody and yay 
That uh, sounds about right. The the guy who hopped in to help was a city councilor, which is completely unimportant to anything else in the book. I don't understand why the scene is here. I understand why the beginning thing where they're complaining about the previous case is here. I don't understand this scene aside from Simon Green wanting to do a little bit of action to start the story. So what I would say is it read very much like somebody writing a paper and needing to fill up the word count. Like they needed to get whatever. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so Allison, I, I disagree. So, well, first of all, here I want to I want to uh, show my. Uh, I don't know whether did we say bona fides or bona fides to Mike. I'm I'm an OG um, Simon Green fan. So Heck yeah, That's good I'm copy. showing him I'm showing him uh, one of the original anthology copies. So anyway, so I th- Mike is correct. It's to set the stage for Hawk and Fisher or no nonsense kick-ass fighters who take down the the corrupt people in the city. That's the entire setup uh, for it. And that's why you kind of have that kind of cold open before you get into the rest of the story. That, that's why it's there. shorter, is what I'm saying. And what yeah. I'm saying is that it could have had something to do with the plot later. Oh, it and could it have. Didn't. No, but no, it didn't. I, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. But, you know, so I guess what you say is actually really, at least to me, is really interesting, Mike, because the trend in books today is no word. Uh, let me rephrase that. Every word has intention and meaning. It all interconnects to the larger whole. This book is actually more in the older style, which is you'll have a throwaway scene that has nothing to do with the actual plot itself, but goes to establish character. So... I guess so. So that's just a very long-winded way of saying. Do you have a preference for one? I would um, like to say that this podcast is called Word Less. Fewer, I, I, I would say that. <laughs> I would say that I have a very well-established preference for much tighter writing, uh, being that I do a Sanderson podcast, who is well known for writing very, very long, extremely tightly paced books. I think Aaron might disagree with you there. My intention was not to talk about uh, that, Allison. No, but it's actually, a, it's actually a good point, Mike. I waffle, and for me, it depends on the quality of the writer. Like, to your point, that's what, what you described is exactly how Sanderson writes. Um, I, yeah. don't have any, I don't have anything that I recall off the top of my head, but there are some stories where they have the... Here, a, a good example, a better version of, of this type of series is the Dresden Files where you will have a, a throwaway scene or two that doesn't exactly relate to the story, or it may relate to a story three books from, from that current plot. So, um, I, so this, I would say, I would say that Jim Butcher is better at this specific thing, because even in those throwaway scenes, he'll, he'll be establishing something that does come into play later. Like, some, some sort of magic that Harry uses, some sort of magical item, like, whatever, it the, the plot of the thing doesn't necessarily play, come back into play, but something from that scene will definitely play at the end of the book. I absolutely agree with that. No, and, and again, to emphasize, a better version of it. And, and I think we've, we've spoken about Jim Butcher before, but I, would, I actually think that he has real strength as a short story writer. He's a really, really good short story writer. But anyways, I can agree to that, yeah. Uh, but yeah, let's get back to the synopsis. So, 
So the uh, the first part of the book that doesn't matter is over now. And now we're being sent to a party at the home of a sorcerer. I'm not going to give real character names here because I don't care and they don't matter. Um, but Hawk and Fisher come into the house and the party's being set up and we get a string of character introductions. And said characters are Magic Guy. It, oh, this isn't in the correct order, by the way. This is just... Magic Guy. Magic Gal. Politician Man. Politician Man's Wife. Politician Man's Two Political Advisors. General Politician Man. General Politician Man's Wife. Mr. Famous Hero Man Guy. Well done. <laughs> yeah. This feels like uh, Simon Green as written by H.G. Wells. Uh, this is really good. I like it. <laughs> okay, keep going. Um, all right, so Hawk and Fisher are sent to be bodyguards for Politician Man. They were requested by name. Uh, somehow everybody at the party knows about the vampire thing somehow. That's never explained. They just do. Um, Word spreads fast. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Um, so the party continues until... Uh, because this is a murder mystery set in a fantasy universe, people start dying. So the plot at this point doesn't so much matter as the order of deaths and the manner of deaths. So, death number one is Politician Man, the guy that they were sent to bodyguard. Whoopsie-daisy, they already messed it up. Uh, are, we, are we working blue? I believe you yes, said we were absolutely. working blue. Okay. <laughs> they fucked up. Um, yeah. I'm kidding. Yeah. Oh no, I said the fuck word. <laughs> you can say the fuck word all you want on this podcast. <laughs> Yay. Uh, all right. So he is inside a locked room. Uh, when they get into the room, he is dead with a nearly empty wine glass by his body and a dagger stabbed all the way to the hilt in his chest. Super duper dead. Uh, Hawk and Fisher are garbage investigators, so they don't actually figure anything out. And they're just like, well, we'll just we'll lock the house down, make sure nobody can leave, and then uh, wait for people who are good at this to come in the morning and sort all this out. All right, good night, everybody. They even say, there is a line in the book that says, the locked, what was it? Something like the locked... A locked room mystery. Oh, the locked room mystery is usually left to the experts. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's yeah. a line in the book. <laughs> and I, I would like to circle back to that when, when it's appropriate, but... Sorry. Yeah, you, oh, you were no, going to say something, Mark. Oh, I about to say, the, their whole premise is, well, we'll just leave everybody locked up, and if anybody else dies, that's one less suspect. Let's go. So. <laughs> I mean, basically... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are, they are very bad at this. Like, very bad at this. Okay, so... They're very good at hitting stuff, but that's about it. So, but go on. Yeah. Uh, death number two is one of Politician Man's political advisors. It doesn't matter which one because they're the same person. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, but he's been ripped apart by an animal, seemingly. They investigate further, and they still suck at it. So, everybody goes back to bed. Uh, death number three is a bunch of them go off to use the bathroom and Magic Gal is killed. Again, 
ripped apart by an animal, seemingly. While everybody's running off to check that out, politician man's wife is stabbed again with a dagger, again, hilt all the way to the chest, through the heart, left in the body. Very angry. Whoever's killing these people are very angry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Before we get to death three, there is a, a scene where they have a truth spell, which is where everybody under its influence is compelled to tell the truth. This is a real fun scene highlighting how bad Hawk and Fisher are at this. Also, it's in a parlor. Yeah. Oh, no. Like many of these scenes are in parlors. (laughs) There's an actual proper parlor scene later that is also in the. So, yeah. So, so this is actually one of the Simon Green's things is, which I don't know. it, It actually makes me enjoy it. Even though I normally don't like he specifically finds the trope and then leans into it as hard as he possibly can. So, I mean, if you're going to have a murder mystery in a locked house, you have to have a parlor scene. That's just oh, absolutely the, you. You have to do it. So it's like you. I'm actively looking for where is the next trope, right? There has to be a trope because that's just the way he writes it. I don't know if you had okay. any other thoughts on that. That's basically my thought. <laughs> I mean, that that is Simon Green's whole deal. Like, it gets worse as he gets further into his career. I think. Oh, well, absolutely, but because you can't get through a page where he's not, like, throwing as many tropes at you as he possibly can through dialogue. Yeah, this this is early enough that he hasn't learned yet that there are phrases that he really likes to write, and so he writes them 8,000 times a book. But he does obviously like the word bathroom. He does, but we're not too, I don't think we're too, no, I think at this point they search the bathrooms. So many bathrooms, so many bathrooms. The, the the interesting thing too I like about about Hawk and Fisher's um, uh, investigation style is let's just threaten people because that's the <laughs> yeah. only way they know how to investigate. Oh, and and the like the people in the house are just absolutely determined to be as unhelpful as possible to keep themselves from being murdered. It's so weird. <laughs> It's it. It's weird. Okay. Uh, at this point, death number five is. Uh, so they've decided that they probably have a werewolf problem. Uh, it took them so a really long time to decide. It took that them too. way too long to figure this out. Uh, probably have a werewolf problem. So they send magic guy uh, down into his lab to find a silver dagger that he thinks he might have somewhere. Uh, at which point, General Politician Man's wife is werewolfed to death. Uh, and That's then, the torn to pieces, not the stab to the heart, to be clear. Right. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, but we see that one actually happening from, like, we already ha- actually have seen from the perspective of Werewolf Man on Death 3 with Magic Gal, and we know who it is. We, the readers, know who it is. It's, it's General Politician Man. Mm-hmm. But now everybody else catches up. Uh, and they have a big fight scene with General Politician Man. Yes. Uh, and then, at this point, now that almost everyone is dead, Hawk gets to finally do have his Hercule Poirot moment. 
where he finally figured it out when there are two suspects left. Three suspects left. <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. He's they're 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 very bad at this. Uh so- but but uh, yeah, I, I want to stop right here. So so he th- so one of the things in the older green books that you don't have in the newer green books is he actually had an action scene. Like you had the actual fight scene, right? Yeah. Um, in the in the later books, you don't have that because he tends to rely on the introduction of the characters to establish how much of a badass they are, and then the fight is over in literally like a sentence or two in the later books. So it's just it's interesting. I never did figure out why he shifted away from actually describing the action scenes. I don't know if anybody has any theories on that. Uh, I mean, I, I think it depends on which series. Because Deathstalker kept a lot of good action. Um, Hawk and Fisher stuck with a lot of action. Uh, I think you're mostly talking about probably Nightside. Although Nightside did have some action. Early well, on, Yes. Later, later, our main character, whose name escapes me, relies almost entirely on um, everybody being afraid of him. John Taylor. So, John um, Taylor. But there, there's, there's the, there's the parody of um, James Bond, the Druid series. Oh yeah, those are fun too. Yeah, and then the Ghost Finders. There's just not a lot of action in those. But anyways, Fair enough. Uh, yeah. So he. Hawk finally fin- figures it out again with when, when the potential suspects are down to three and he starts off by giving extremely good reasoning for why the first two can't possibly have done it. Mm-hmm. Then he also tells us how the third guy did it. And then there's a big fight scene and they kill him. And then they decide to blame it on a werewolf. And then the surviving politician man's political advisor uh, who just had almost everybody that he knows and cares about murdered in a brutal fashion hours ago. Uh, He makes a cool joke that everybody laughs at the end. (laughs) Yes. That's well summed up. (laughs) That's pretty much it. Yeah. So Mike, I have a question for you before we start talking about the book. Um, You picked this book, right? I sure did. Why? Okay, well, a few things. First, I've established that while I am aware that Simon Green is a terrible author and that his books are bad, I do love him and I love them. And this is, of his shorter works, this is, I think, my favorite. So what is it about? So, like, I know we all have guilty pleasures. And I assume from how you're describing this, this is a guilty pleasure for you. I mean, he wouldn't if I felt any guilt about it. There you go. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> what is it about it that appeals to you? Appeals to you? Um, the like the the core concept of mixing the murder mystery and and fantasy genres. I had never encountered that combo before. Um, before finding this book, obviously, yeah. I've since read Dresden, and that's there's a lot of that. Not necessarily murder mystery, perhaps, but like. Detective stories. They're all in the same. No, absolutely. And, and this is definitely genre. one of the this is definitely one of the earlier versions of the urban fantasy or detective fantasy type of novels for sure. Did you read this when it originally came out or did you read it kinda of as a later publication? 
Uh, I was introduced to Simon Green back in college, which would have been the early 2000s. So he was already pretty well established by then. Um, but it was new to me. Interesting. Okay. No, that, that's very interesting. Uh, Allison, I have a question for you about Hawking Fisher. Just generally, not specifically, okay? Okay. Um, one of the things at the time that it was released, I remember this very clearly, was that it was touted uh, that there's basically going to be equal representation of the genders. That's Hawk and Fisher. It's not one, It's not like one doesn't dominate the other. And that was the way it was kind of like pushed out of the time. And there's a lot of talk about how cool Fisher was or, and all that stuff. What were your impressions of it sitting now here in, in 2022? As far as gender representation? Yeah, well, what, what did you think yeah, about the well, Hawk and Fisher first, dynamic, or about Fisher? She was fine. Um, I like, it's fine to have a, you know, I like that they were married, so we didn't have to have any weird, like, sexual tension stuff. So I really enjoyed that part. Uh, he kind of talks down to her a little bit, though. Um, he calls her Lass, which I don't mind, except she doesn't have a pet name for him it would be fine if it came off as a pet name but it doesn't mm -hmm. um so but honestly it's not something i care about like <laughs> you're talking to somebody uh, I, who reads books with lots of not representation <laughs> gotcha mike it looks like you wanted to say something yeah i've got a few thoughts on this uh so we have two openly misogynistic characters uh throughout the course of this story uh, who both end up dead, which is great. Um, <laughs> but we don't have any sort of balance to that. So, like, as, as you as you said earlier, like, their only technique is to threaten people. And that's Fisher's immediate go-to as soon as uh, as soon as a guy's like, hey, we should have sex. She's like, I will stab you in the dick. That's <laughs> true. Um, I mean, I, I've read all almost all the Hawk and Fisher stuff, so this is to me like established character stuff. But she does very much take a backseat and let Hawk sort of lead the investigation stuff. Like it's established in later things that like this this is their dynamic, and they're both okay with that. Like. They're, they both step up to the kicking ass. He generally handles interacting with people because he's less angry at everyone all the time. By a little. Not by much. <laughs> I was going to say, they both have anger issues. <laughs> well, and, and Fisher's more of, I, I want to sleep, eat, drink, carouse, and just leave me alone. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know that it's established enough in this book as, as like a first book introduction to the characters to come off as anything but a little bit misogynistic. But I, I will say that the work gets put in in later books. Enough for me, anyway. No, I, I think I, I agree with both of you. Uh, it was interesting rereading this because at the time, I distinctly remember the time I was like, oh, cool. Like, you know, there's a female character that actually has stuff to do, right? Besides, you know, just kind of sitting there, oh, save me, oh, save me. 
And then when I reread it, I'm kind of going, well, she's kind of in the oh, save me role still, right? It's just she, she's a little bit more badass about it. So I mean, in, in the big fight at the end, they take turns getting hit really hard and knocked out for, for a few yeah. seconds. So, so there's that level of equality, I guess. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no, but it's, and, and I find myself, it's very difficult for me, at least now, to, to read these, read Hawk and Fisher specifically without thinking back to another series, which we said we wouldn't talk about. So, anyway, so. But anyways, I, I agree with both of your thoughts about it. The one, the one thing that I actually did like was that we didn't have to have any, spend any time even developing an insta-romance. They're married, they're together, they're true to each other, end of story, let's move on, right? So I at least like that that was kind of in the background and we never had to think about it. Sure. I just want to say in defense of older literature that maybe doesn't have enough res- representation or whatever, I mean, Miss Marple was a thing in like 1920. <laughs> She was a little old lady who solved mysteries. I, it's not like it's completely out of nowhere. And, and this was before Wheel of Time, wasn't it? Because Wheel of Time has some pretty badass ladies. So this is kind of contemporaneous to, to the Wheel of Time. And I'm not, so anyways, I'm not, I wasn't trying to bring this up to kind of say, ooh, look how bad this was back then, right? It's more of an illustration of, like, to your point, Every book is written in its own time period. And for people who are unable to look at a book and read it in the context of which it's written, to me, that's a that person's reading problem than it is the author's problem. The author's writing it in his era, right? And he can't, or he or she can't predict what a future era is going to, going to uh, like or not like. Anyway, that was my thought. And this oh, whole uh, story made me think of Agatha Christie, and he has got to be a fan of her. Oh, oh this is, uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. This is, this is, and then there was one. I mean, my mention of Hercule Poirot uh, was yeah. not accidental. This is this is very much <laughs> Simon Green was like, I can do a murder mystery, and to his credit, he does. Like this is this is a fair murder mystery within the within the boundaries of a fantasy universe. No, I, he does okay, the same I, thing that Agatha Christie does. Except well, I, kn- I, knew how it, end. I knew how it ended and I caught the clues as they were coming out. And I'm like, you know what? If, if I knew that this was important and those, and sort of how it played, I could have come up with, with the ending at this point. So and you then, think like, that stalker is revealed enough yeah, uh, at at the point where like he does his little trick with the wine, like if if you can extrapolate that to also take into account the uh, the magical protection amulet thing, which you're also told about, right? Like it's he doesn't hide the ball; he gives you more and more obvious clues as you go on. Right. Well. I mean, I never really try and solve mysteries anyway when I'm reading them. Maybe if I go back and read it, I'll, I'll concede. But I would have to read it again. Uh, Mike is exactly right. The, okay. it's, it's, the, the clues are there. 
it it's not a story where aha the the character solves it and then you just have to assume the character knows what, what he's doing the clues are there and you can and when you read it it's it's there to be seen okay okay i mean sometimes i'm wrong sometimes when I'm online, I'm wrong a lot. <laughs> it, it is important to keep in mind that Hawk and Fisher are terrible at this. Uh, the characters <laughs> yes. are... That, that's the characters, part of why it's so unbelievable, though. It's the, because they're so bad at it. They're and really then you're bad like, at Where it. is this coming from? <laughs> um, Hawk all of a sudden has it all figured out. Like, yeah. it, does, it doesn't fit. The, the, the characters whose lives are at stake uh, lie for very bad reasons. Uh are just obstinate for no reason. And then, yeah, it takes everybody way too long to be like, maybe there's a werewolf here. Who's, who's, who's got werewolf stuff? I can't think of anybody <laughs> who's got werewolf stuff. <laughs> I mean, he's like, no, honey, I'm not cheating on you. I just have stuff to do on the full moon. <laughs> Don't worry, babe. <laughs> and they had just done a werewolf mystery like they mentioned fighting a werewolf as they're walking yeah. to get the vampire. So you would yeah, think you, that they would be on werewolf alert or something. You, you know what would have been a better thing for them to fight than a vampire? A werewolf? Gosh, what if there had been a werewolf that just started attacking people in the city? Like we already established, it's the full moon. <laughs> yeah, but you have to, if you're going to go with the tropes, yeah, I mean, usually in a book with a werewolf, you also. Usually vampires get thrown in. That's kind of the thing. That's that's fair, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's it's all yeah, the... it's... Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. Just... No, I, I'm sorry. That wasn't a frustrated face at, at what you were saying. That was a frustrated face at the book being sloppy. <laughs> I would agree with that. By the way, since you mentioned murder mystery and Agatha Christie, do you mind if I ask you a tangent question since I happen to have you here? Uh. I, I incredibly mind. Don't get into my business, sir. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Is Knives Out any good? Uh, the first one was pretty good. I really enjoyed it. I also enjoy Ryan Johnson just as a director. Brick um, is holy crap incredible. Brothers Bloom is a lot of fun. Looper is one of the better time travel films I've seen. Uh, have not yet seen glass onion but that's coming to netflix in a few weeks so i'm gonna get, i'm gonna watch that then yeah i was curious because it's a murder mystery my wife has been nagging me to watch movies which is not something i generally do so if you give it a thumbs up i think i should i will try it that's that's all i needed to know oh two thumbs up two thumbs um, up all right i i am also i i have a big old man crush on chris evans and he looks real good in that sweater so I don't know. I don't know if, if that's something that's going to sway you one way or another. But yeah, I, I think you just identified the reason my wife wants to watch the movie. Okay, <laughs> you know what? She's not wrong for it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, you. I literally watched Troy because Brad Pitt plays Achilles. Like that is the reason why I watched it. Brad Pitt's a good-looking man. He's but... a very good-looking man. So. You know. Anyway, so the... <laughs> back, back to the book since I, I took us off script, so let's go back on script at least a little bit. <laughs> Is the fact that they're terrible investigators 
intentional on Simon Green's part. What are I mean, your thoughts? I think so in order to have the big fight scenes at the end. I think that at this point in his career, he felt that his strength lied more in writing action scenes, which plays out for about the next decade and a half of his writings, at least. That's definitely something he leaned into. So he, I'm sure he thought to himself, you know what? I can't, I probably can't write a great murder mystery. I'm not Agatha Christie, but I am Simon Green and I can write some schlocky action. Yep. Awesome. And then he puts on some sunglasses and drives off into the night in a convertible. I don't know because I haven't read enough of him. It, it wouldn't surprise me if it was unintentional. I mean, he, he references Scooby-Doo at the very end of the book. <laughs> so <laughs> He does. He does. He does. So probably. Uh, so uh, two, two things for, for Simon Green which actually do appeal to me is he has no shame about doing cultural, like mo- current cultural references. It's just kind of his thing. Doesn't bother me in the least. I enjoy it. And you don't see it so much here. You see it a little bit in the introduction of the characters. But he has a real, like he's made an intentional decision to put style over substance. That his whole thing is looking cool, being being very interesting or looking very dangerous or all that. That's like a thing to him. So all the stuff that they were like, we learned you should not do as a writer that he just, he does it right. So, um, which actually appeals to me because it's just, it's an obvious choice he makes and he's just going to go into it. And he's actually pretty good at it. So I don't know what are your general thoughts on it. Either one of you. Um, I mean, if, if style over substance existed as a human being who wrote books, it would be Simon R. Green. <laughs> yeah. I would agree uh, with that. <laughs> so, he's just a... It's hard to tell if he's a bad author or if he just no, he is. really he is. enjoys... He's a bad <laughs> A stick. It's like, a sh- but he leans into being a bad author. Then, like, he's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's just. I mean, hey, if you can make a living at it, he's made a real. So for for ref- he's a. So a he's made a really good living at it, and b these books were popular. They weren't just like kind of back of the bookshelf. Like when they came out, these were popular books. They were popular enough that they were republished as anthologies. I mean, they were really, really, really popular back back when they were released. So, however we may be kind of going, look, he's a bad author and all this, he wrote in a way that was really appealing to a large amount of people. Including you guys. 100%. Oh yeah, you can't hear it, but I was nodding. (laughs) Yeah. I like something from the night side better than this, but I did. I enjoyed it as stupid as some of the things were like black well, when he's dying. Huh? I mean, this is, this is very early in his career. If you like the way he writes in night side, that's, that's much later on when he really leads into the schlock. Well, I uh, have read death stalker, at least one of the books. So the first Deathstalker book, that, 
the first Death Starker book was written kind of contemporaneous to, to the Night Side, like within the same general, that time frame. And um, Death Got it. I actually have his Wikipedia page open. Uh, not even sort of. The second Deathstalker series was. So that's Deathstalker Legacy 2003, something from the Night Side 2003. There you go. Because I know, like, pretty much the, if, if you want to look up, like, soap, soap opera in space, that, that's Deathstalker, which is fine. But when he writes longer, he's actually an author that, as for all his flaws, he actually does better in a large on a larger canvas than he does on a smaller canvas. I can I can definitely agree to that because he actually like puts some he he, he it's almost like well crap I have to fill up the space by putting in something serious so he at least touches on it right on the larger book so anyways just some random thoughts I had when, since you mentioned Deathstalker so I would I would say that like the the first Deathstalker series, which is five books, and then Blue Moon Rising are him actually trying to write good books. He doesn't succeed very well because, again, style over substance. But he's actually putting effort into writing good books that are good in ways that other writers also write good books. Later on, I would say after about, like, from about 2003 on, he's like, you know what? I wasn't as good at that as I'd like to be, and I'm way better at doing stupid schlock, and it sells pretty well, so I'm gonna lean into that. I think you're right, Mike says. So I actually think you're exactly right. And as you were saying that, I was just kind of thinking. So, Blue Moon Rising is actually one of my nostalgic favorite books. Like for all the reasons you said, it's like it's very, very flawed, but. It also has some really cool stuff. And as you were saying, I'm kind of like going, I'm thinking to myself, it's kind of like he's a failed Joe Abercrombie when it comes to, because he was trying to push against the trend of, you know, the Tolkien-esque, like, you know, heroes in books. And he was trying to push against it. And it's very evident in Bloom and Rising. Joe Abercrombie did it, like, in order of magnitude better. So, anyway. Well, Joe... Abercrombie, who I am not a fan of, is a very good writer. He's very good. Yeah, I think. And I just and don't Simon Ar- particularly like him at all. Simon R. Green, who I am a fan of, is a very bad writer. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? He's a hell of a lot of fun. And I am a big defender in Schlock. Yeah. Um, no, this is this, this is, is not my schlock. schlock. I have other schlock that I read. This is not something I would choose to read, but it's, I totally get the appeal. Look, if you have a two-hour plane flight, pick up this book and read it. You will, ha- you will be entertained, and you'll have a good time. Red, I, th- I think the best green for you to read is probably Secret Histories, the, the ones that are all James Bond title jokes. I do love James Oh, yeah, I love no. James Bond. So, so, so <laughs> no, no, no to, to, to emphasize Mike's point, he leans into it as hard as he can. So, like, like the guy who's the James Bond analog is very much a James Bond analog to the point of, in my opinion, deliberate parody. So, you, you know how James Bond kind of, like, blithely walks through stuff, not really solving anything, and then happens to, like, you know, figure it out and find the bad guy and stuff? Like, that yeah. happens to an absurd degree 
in the Secret yeah. History series. Yeah. And and a huge chunk of these books is uh, they introduce cool magic tech at the beginning. And then throughout the third act of the book, Harry Drood, I think Harry Drood, yeah. whatever, Edwin Drood, the guy, uh, <laughs> will just like he's like he has a clipboard in front of him with a little checkmark list. Like, all right, I've used this one. Time to use this one and this one and this one. And then we will finish out the story with this last one that was probably introduced first. And I was told not to use unless it was emergency. I will definitely give that a try next time I need a palate cleanser. So yeah, this is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he has his cue. He has his penny. Why he has his uh, penny, money, yeah, money, penny, money, penny. He has it all, including does the cool he, cards. <laughs> does he um, womanize? So that's actually one thing that he doesn't do. He, <gasps> he that's part of James Bond. There, he, no, there's some insta love. And he stays true to her forever, mind you. He's described. She's described as like being a total babe, though. Of course, of course, she is. <laughs> he's probably a total babe too, right? I mean, he's James Bond. He's, James Bond. He's, yeah, he's Magic James Bond. So, I think I could dig Mag- Magic James Bond. I really do. <laughs> like- I think for you specifically, if you're going to read any of any of the Simon R. Greens and like legitimately enjoy them and not just enjoy how dumb they are and how much fun it is to make fun of them. Uh, I, I think these are going to be the ones that are going to work the best for you. Okay. <laughs> <But> one, <laughs> look, well, one like, thing I'll say definitely for sure, and this is something I've noted. Well, it's painfully obvious with the Simon Green books. I'll just say generally for the older books, for me, it's very tough to binge read these older books, and especially Simon Green. But like, if I'm rereading Simon Green, like two books tops, I'm done. Because if not, I'm rereading these older books. They reintroduce exactly. So (laughs) you'll be you'll be rereading the same plot lines like pages and pages at a time. You want to claw your eyeballs out, and that's something that I think is. I think it's a good thing that the newer books you get released and they don't spend a lot of time reintroducing you to the plot lines. You either get or you don't. And if you want to figure out what, what happened before, go read the previous book. So, yeah. Um, Hawk and Fisher don't grow as characters. Uh, they don't improve as people. They don't develop any new techniques for solving crimes. Literally the things they do are intimidation and violence. End of list. Do they have yes. more truth spells? I don't remember. No. It's been a while. Well, it's just so so Hawk's axe ends up being a pretty cool axe. Uh, it never gets right out stated that way, but it does get explained. It does get implied that his axe has some uh, magical properties to it, which are pretty interesting. So there's that. Fish has nothing magical about her. She just punches things. Yeah. So, so yes, to, to embellish on that, uh, his axe gets more character growth than he does. Oh, and Allison, by the way, if you want to know, like one of the things that irritates me so much about Wayne. He got personality. We're we're talking about it right now. (laughs) He got personality development in the last one. Uh, I wouldn't know because I'm never going to read the damn thing. Well, 
it was good. I enjoyed it. Uh, but I agree uh, that is an look, sometimes an issue. And for, okay, so this is not <laughs> Mike's no, podcast. Baba, <laughs> hang on, hang on. Mark, if you yeah. change your mind about wanting to read The Lost Metal and you need a companion podcast to, to go through <laughs> it about 50 pages a week, uh, I recommend the Shardcat. No, uh, the Cosmere Deep Dive podcast that I host. I would love to. Actually, you know, I, so, so I, I am not the biggest Sanderson fan, but whenever I have read Sanderson, I, the first podcast that I download is yours. Hey, thank you. I, I appreciate that. that. Um, and then, yeah, if anybody comes to us from here, uh, just just skip the first couple of books. Just jump straight into Well of Ascension if you want to start near the beginning. Just just go ahead and skip those first couple of books. Well, I would I would say start where Dave starts. Start when Dave starts. Well, that's audience. only like six episodes in and our audio still sucks. Oh, well, whatever. <laughs> um, so we have gone way off topic, but. Mike has got to promote his podcast. I'm on um, the green team of the Legendarium. And thank you for listening. You can find us at wordlesspod at gmail.com. Good night. Bye, everybody. Bye. Apparently, she doesn't like our guilty pleasure. She, she in fact, did enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, she also enjoys shitting on things that are silly. <laughs> oh, it's, totally, it's totally fine. I'll, I'll, save it. I'll save it for the podcast. I mean, you, you do a show with her regularly. You ought to know this about her by now. Like, she wouldn't have gone into that much this is dumb if she hadn't been enjoying how dumb it was. I, I did thoroughly enjoy how dumb it was. And by the way, I took notes. I did not make a spreadsheet, though, because I knew it would be a waste of time. It's Hawk and Fisher. Why are you taking <laughs> notes? Well, I can't help myself.